This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we're thrilled to welcome Azar Nafisi, the best-selling author of Reading Lolita in Tehran, a portrayal of the Islamic Revolution in Iran and its effects on one university professor and her students. Celebrating the success of her most recent book, The Republic of Imagination, Nafisi joins NYPL's Paul Holdengraber for a conversation on the importance of literature, freedom, and originality in today's global society. So, these seven words, Azar, um, no curiosity did not kill the cat with an exclamation point. <laughs> Remind me of the seven words that you quote in, in the book of Nabokov, where he says, curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. Which, which is a line that you, you quote when you're talking about your dear father. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, it's so wonderful to be here. It's my so wonderful <laughs> to have you back. My sort of portable home, <laughs> I feel. This is, this is the Republic of Imagination. You know, and second of all, um, you asked me so for seven words, and uh, uh, how could curiosity kill anyone? I mean, it kills poets and writers when they do not toe the line, and they never toe the line if they're great enough and committed enough to their work. And it kills the readers who also don't toe the line. Um, but it is the most life-giving uh, uh, thing in the w uh, instinct in the world. And I feel that um, in order to, um, when we talk about Republic of Imagination, we're talking about two essential elements. One is curiosity. And um, I believe that curiosity has been with man uh, in terms of stories and mythology and science from the dawn of man. That is how we survived through being curious about what we did not know and try to understand it uh, and thereby control it through articulating it. And uh, so uh, it's essential to the cat's life, actually. You know, it could never kill a cat, not a real cat. So you identify with the cat. I, <laughs> I identify with the cat. I think all cats must be curious, don't you? I mean... Uh, but bring this, bring this back into the context of your father. My father? Well, yes. that's a different story. Okay. Well, the whole idea... My father was the first person who um, introduced me to the world of imagination. I, I was almost, um, uh, as soon as I would come to consciousness around the age of three or three and a half, we had this ritual where every night he would tell me a story. And um, soon enough, we were not only... I was not only listening to his stories, but we were creating stories. So um, if, for example, he was mad at me, he wouldn't tell me I'm mad at you. He would say there was this man who had this daughter whom he loved very much, and this girl one day 
you know, yada yada, because I did a lot of yada yadas, <laughs> you know. And and so, uh, but he was also. I re I think that I instinctively realized at that very early age how democratic. Um, stories are because you know one day he would talk about our great epic poet Ferdowsi's stories and Shahrazad and Iranian stories. The next day I would go to Italy with Pinocchio. The next day I would go to France with the Little Prince or to Denmark with Hans Christian Andersen. I went to America with Charlotte's Web, you know, uh, and 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 so from very young age. I think I instinctively realized as a reader and a listener of the stories that I can bring the whole world into that small room that, that my father created for me. But curiosity got him into trouble. Oh, you mean with the government yeah. are you talking about? You really uh, want to talk about governments? Um, I think uh, you do. <laughs> I, no, only, in, I, mean, I so only do it within the context of Nabokovian context when he says governments come and go, only the trace of genius remains. I think that since I live in Washington, every morning I wake up, I turn my face towards the Congress and I remind them that the greatest among you went, you guys will also go. But <laughs> Einstein will remain and Twain will remain and the only reason Jefferson and Lincoln and Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass are there, it is because of the vision. It is because of the enlightenment. You know, and my father, uh, he was both curious and insubordinate. Uh, he was the youngest mayor of Tehran. I mention it in my uh, memoirs, things I've been silent about. And I never thought that my parents were made for politics because they were uh, too much, you know, I don't know, insubordinate, I guess. And so for that, uh, he was jailed for a trumped-up charge in a temporary uh, prison where he was told that if he regrets, uh, if he writes a letter and apologizes, he will be set free. And he didn't know what he had to apologize for. So he was in jail for four years without a trial, in the temporary jail, in the library of the prison. And um, then uh, uh, finally he had a trial and he defended himself. The last defense was him. And he was cleared of all charges except insubordination, which I love. Yeah, no, I, but that, then they later I mean, dropped that, unfortunately. But, but insubordination, in, what more do I you mean, want let's from celebrate a father? It. Yes, I mean, <laughs> you know? just breaking yes. the rules, how wonderful, and teaching you to adore stories. Teaching you to adore stories, you know, uh, I, I'm sure you've all had this experience. I know you've had, Paul. Um, the world... The real, what we call reality is so fragile and it is so transient. I found it in my life, living Iran in such a young age and uh, then being in exile, constantly not knowing where my home is. But reality can happen in terms of a tornado or a plane that crashes. You know, we never know. So, but the portable world of imagination is enduring and, 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 and it transcends all the limitations that life imposes on us, uh, you know, from 
nationality and religion and ethnicity and race and gender, all these limitations in this amazing place are gone. I mean, those books on the bookshelves um, connect us to centuries ago of our past, and they connect us to people of all races and nationalities and, and, and genders. And you know, um, So I, I believe that that is the true democratic place. Unfortunately, we have the luck that we can carry it with us. No one can take it away from us. One of the figures in, in your, your book is Mark Twain. Yes. And I'd, I'd love you to react to a couple of quotations of Mark Twain that um, do not feature in your book, but that I adore. One of them is, the man who does not read good books has no advantage over the man who cannot read them. That's beautiful. And the other um, quotation is one that, in a, in, a, in a sense, I think espouses your belief that Huckleberry Finn and Mark Twain started, mm -hmm. declared independence. He said, what a good thing Adam had. When he said a good thing, he knew nobody had said it before. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that, that is a fantastic <laughs> quotation from him. Because uh, he was the Adam of America's literary uh, you know, uh, traditions. You always think that, of course, you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and H.L. Uh, Mencken, they all talk about Mark Twain as the beginning of the American novel. Um, and I had not really realized, because, you know, a lot of times writers are either very nasty towards one another or too complimentary. But... but I hadn't realized how true this is until I again reread Twain, you know, and, and, and I realized that, you know, and, and I read Twain within the context of American, uh, you know, history. And, and, and what I realized was that, okay, this country, um, as George Washington said, actually, and this is again addressed to Congress and, and the White House, he said that we're infinitely lucky because we have access to infinite land and we have access to the legacy of enlightenment. So America itself had nothing, but at the same time, it had access to legacy of mankind, you know, that it could now actualize. And at the same time, it had the privilege of being new, you know, and somebody had to dare to make it completely new. We had giants before Mark Twain. We had Melville. I, I love Melville, you know, especially Bartleby and, and, and actually Confidence Man. I think it's gorgeous. Bartleby. Bartleby is no. amazing. I prefer not to. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, I, I just <laughs> I, I just recall uh, having a student once, and he was he was really truly brilliant. Uh, he always said things that were slightly off, and he was a student one wanted to have. And one day I just said, Michael, have you in fact read Bartleby the Scrivener? Mm. And he said, Not personally. <laughs> um, <laughs> <it> <laughs> But anyway, you were saying about Mark Twain. Yes, and, 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 but what Twain did, he, as Fitzgerald says, he turned to the mountains to the west and he'd never looked back. And, 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 and Miller says this man talks as if no one has talked about him before. Now, he created two characters 
Hakfinunjim that had never existed before in the world. You know, Hak and Jim are quintessentially American and at the same time universal in the same way that Don Quixote is Spanish, quintessentially Spanish, or Penin is quintessentially Russian, but at the same time universal. You know, and, and, and at the same time, he created this new rising American landscape, and and um, of and self of self reliance. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and then also, of course, um, uh, the the role that nature plays in that landscape and a new language. Uh, you know, and, and and not just that. I think he created um, in the relationship between Huck and Jim um, the, the basis for a new American morality, for a, what, what we could call morality. Now, you notice, for example, that whenever we talk of homes or cities, we're talking of places where are safe. We don't want our children um, to go out into the wilderness. But in Hakfin, everything is the other way around. I mentioned uh, in this book that um, uh, I always taught Hakfin um, by at bringing to the attention that he um, spells civilization with an S. And that is what he does with the whole reality. He spells it all over again for us. So those houses that Hakfin calls smothery, you know, are not a place of safety for our heroes. It is the wilderness that we tell our children not to go to. It is when they are alone on that wild river that they are safe. As soon as they come to civilization, they have to either risk death or something that I learned in the Islamic Republic of Iran is close to death, which is disguise, like Hakfin becoming a, a, a woman, for example. And the amount of violence in that book that this child and this man, uh, Jim, uh, confront is amazing. And it is Hakfin that for the first time brings to our attention that the worst enemy of America and of democracy is conformity. It is complacency from the Sunday school people who tell you, you go to hell and a runaway slave goes to hell and they think they go to heaven, but they don't have the eye to see that runaway slave as a human being. That you know, at the center of all that violence, Shepherdsons and Grangerfords killing one another, not knowing why they kill one another, the, the colonel who kills a beggar, you know, all of that, you go to the deepest form of violence, which is racism. And he doesn't preach. You know, he's speaking to you through the relationship between the two. And what is worse in a novel than a man being deprived of his wife and children who have been sold down the river. So Huck confronts Jim and learns from the Jim as an individual, not as a race, you know. Uh, I can go on, so you should uh, tell me to shut up. I, I don't want you to shut up. I really <laughs> don't. And, but I, I think that this conformity you were talking about as dangerous is one that you really fee fear we're, we're going down that path yes. now and that um, all of these objections to books that have warnings saying, you know, this may not be appropriate for you yes. is, is very worrisome to you. 
It is very worrisome, and to tell you the truth, um, uh, Paul, this is one of the reasons I wrote this book. I mean, it was a reaction to the fact that I come to this country that is free, and it is free because I still can say anything I want to, I hope. But the point about it is that um, the danger, and in each novel I talk about in this book or in any great novel, the greatest danger is when you feel too much at home. You know, when Adorno talks about um, the greatest um, uh, form of morality is never feel at home in your own home, you know, when you feel too complacent, when you feel that you don't need to learn from the others, you don't need to um, know knowledge, you know, imaginative knowledge is not something you have today and then tomorrow you say, okay, you know, we don't need to imagine anymore. We don't need to know about our own history anymore, you know, and this is what is happening to us in this country. Uh, I'm not going to bring all these highfalutin uh, poets and writers. Of course, for me, any great writer is highfalutin. Bring, bring well, like, for example, um, I start the introduction in my book with the Eastern Europeans. And um, actually, could I say something? I'm going to embarrass someone here in this room, but because I can't see him, I can embarrass him, it's, and it's, I usually... It's all the more pleasurable. Yes, and, I, um, and you can always embarrass people who are good, who don't want to be known right. or to be seen. Because if somebody wanted me to mention them, but I that wouldn't. that person is in the room. We should This know person, that. I hope, is he in the room? I don't know. You'll be, I, 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 I hope I so. Know. I hope you're in the room, Peter Sis, because Peter Sis, one of the most amazing writers and illustrators I have come across who's from Czech Republic, um, when my publisher asked me, you know, the jacket for this book, I could only imagine him, not because I'm that greedy that I would even think he would do it, but because of the fact that um, I knew he understands the Republic of Imagination, the way that those poets and writers that I mentioned in my book, like Brodsky and, and Milosh and Havel do. And so this is Peter Sis's cover. Every talk I have been to almost, I have asked people, if you don't like to buy the book, steal the jacket. <laughs> don't steal it from this library. But, you know, not from libraries, not from bookstores, not from independent bookstores anyway. Maybe Walmart, I'm not but sure. But where, where would you steal it from? Do you, do you have particular places where it would be good to steal Walmart, it from? Maybe Walmart, maybe. Okay. But I, mean, you know, I hope that there's nobody from... I, I want them to sell my books, obviously. But anyway, uh, so, so my homage was to the uh, Eastern Europeans because they really understood when they came to a democratic society. They understood two things simultaneously. One, the greatness of freedom. You know, and they all are for protecting what brings freedom to a country, and that is freedom of expression, which is freedom of imagination. You know, and so um, um, Brodsky says in his Nobel speech that um, he says that um, Lenin, Stalin, and uh, Mao, uh, they were all literate. Uh, he says Mao even wrote some verses. He doesn't say poems. He says some verses. He said, but they had one thing in common. Um, their hit list was longer than their reading list. Now, the whole point about this is that 
reading the way, for example, nowadays we're teaching our students at schools that you only need to be literate. So we have standard tests for you, where we test you in mathematics and, you know, literacy. No, literacy is only the first step towards then really reading. And, and uh, Brodsky says, if a nation, if a, um, he talks about how individuals and nations who, who do not read, they face death, you know. And Ray Bradbury, one of my favorite authors, he says, you don't need to burn books as we did in Iran or they did in fascist Germany or ISIS is doing right now. He says, you don't need to burn books to destroy a culture. Only get the people not to read. And that is what is happening today in this country. Public education is going down. You know, we live in a democracy. Every citizen has the right to a great education. We don't tell our citizens, go after a vocation that makes money for you. We don't tell them that. What we tell our citizens is that we provide you with the educational background so that you go into any vocation that is your passion. We want to teach them passion. You know, you're here because of it. Most of you here because of it. You know, and, 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 and even people who donated to this library who were among the wealthiest, like the ones you were showing me, Carnegie, <laughs> they had the passion that went beyond just making money. You know, so what I'm scared of is taking lit poetry and music and art out of our public schools, replacing public schools either with charter schools or with, you know, um, private schools. And the last thing I want to say, segregating science from humanities. The greatest science and the greatest humanists come together. You were saying that earlier on when we were upstairs <laughs> quoting Nabokov. Yeah, Nabokov says, <laughs> it was amazing what this amazing gentleman was talking about that uh, um, Nabokov's um, predictions about s butterfly migration from Russian continent to here came true, you know. Um, but the whole point is Nabokov says you need to have the passion of the scientist and the precision of the poet because both scientists and poet need to be curious, need to come outside of themselves, need to want the desire, the central edge to know. We come back full circle to curiosity. Yeah, curiosity. Um, I'm, I'm curious of your, your love of the Marx brothers. <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't mean to create quite such a reaction, but it's a good one. Um, because you, you, you speak about it, and I'm, I'm curious, um, what was it in the Marx Brothers uh, that, that um, struck you so powerfully? I know that for me, when I was living in France, is when I mostly discovered the Marx Brothers, and there was a cinema on the, on the street of the Sorbonne, the Rue des Écoles, called Action École, where they used to show the Marx Brothers, and still do, up to this day, once a week, there's a Marx Brothers movie, and it was fantastic to see it, because half of the audience was French-speaking, and the other half was American-speaking, and so the Americans, or the English-speaking, would laugh, and then the subtitles would come, and then the French 
French would laugh. <laughs> and, and, very, and, and very often it wasn't translatable. Very yeah, yeah, very Marx Brothers. So they, uh, there was always kind of a, a, a moment uh, of you know, waiting, will the, will the subtitle live up to the original? Which is interesting in terms of translation. But tell me uh, your experience of the Marx Brothers. That, that is fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, their spirit lives on. You know? um, well, first of all, you've been talking about Mark Twain and quintessentially American. Mm. Here you have quintessentially American, and you were talking about the French. Now, this country, no, they can change the name French fries if they want to, but they have to know that they have a great debt to French, not just because of Lafayette and, 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 and the way Franklin and Jefferson were um, greeted in France, uh, but also because it was the French critics and, and filmmakers who made us aware of uh, Marx Brothers and Johnny Guitar, the American Westerns, as art and not just, you know, uh, I don't know just what, because, uh, you know, everything. Uh, but Marx Brothers, the first time I, I have to thank the Islamic Republic for so many things. Now, you realize, I go back to Iran, uh, all these films and the archives in radio and television are, are prohibited now and Marx Brothers were among the archives. So we start getting these old movies through bootleg videos, you know, and that is where I had the time to watch all the Marx Brothers, the night at the opera, opera, the day at the so races. you watched it secretly. Yeah, we were, yeah, they, you know, everything, everything is done only secretly, which means everyone knows that it is being done, and sometimes you get caught. You know the Thomas Jefferson line that for two people to keep a secret, one has to be dead. <laughs> yeah. And usually the ones who are dead are people who buy the videos and not the ones who come and get it from you. But anyway, uh, uh, Marx Brothers and then those magnificent film noirs by Howard Hawks and then John Ford. So, and my students, I would bring some of my students to my home to watch it. And my children were brought up on Marx Brothers. You know, they, they uh, would sit with me and we would just laugh, even though they didn't understand the language at that time very well. Um, and I remember when I first came to America, uh, one day we met with um, Carl Gershman. Uh, who, they told me to go to National Endowment to Democracy to give a speech, and I didn't want to go there. First of all, I thought it was a nest of spies, you know. But spies, it's good for them to hear what you have to say, right? <laughs> but, but anyway... I went and I thought that they're all going to hate me because I talked, at that time I hadn't read my book, I was still living in Iran. I talked about reading Jane Austen in Tehran. And after the talk, Carl Gershman came to me and he started talking about Jane Austen. That was the only part that excited him so much. Anyway, so we decided we will um, um, correspond. But it was dangerous to write to them under their own names, right? Uh, most of my course. So I chose the name University of Fredonia. And, and so I have all these faxes that I sent to the University of Fredonia, you know? And, and so Marx Brothers have served me in many different ways, you know? Um, the the, the humour also helps in oh, yeah. times of oh, repression. Yeah. The humor and, and, and the absurdity that they bring with, with every movement and, and, and with words, you know, especially, of course, Groucho, but 
On one hand, you have hapo this. Isn't, hapo isn't yeah, bad. Yeah, and yeah, you have I mean, this I've manic, always, uh, you know, bang, bang, bang. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you have Harpo with those eyes that are constantly manically going from one way to the other, you know. I'm glad I don't see you because I don't know what the heck I'm doing here, you know. With a, and, 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 and that absurdity spoke to us. Um, uh, you know, uh, because that is how we also sustain ourselves against, like, Eastern Europe, through making, turning ourselves into jokes. Do you, do you, I mean, it's, it's a sensitive question to ask, but I'll ask it nevertheless, is, uh, do, do you miss that um, fervor and enthusiasm and passion that repression afforded in some strange way? I miss the intensity and passion. I remember once I, one of my students, the one I talk about in Reading Lolita in Tehran, and by the way, some people think that when I wrote Reading Lolita in Tehran, I was kowtowing to imperialism and writing about Western literature. They should tell it to uh, the young people back home who were in love with Nabokov and all of this. Uh, my first book in Iran was on Nabokov because of my students. But anyway, she, I took her to Baltimore and I had some talk to do. I, I left her at um, uh, the Walters Museum in Baltimore. Uh, there was an exhibition of Degas ballerinas. And when I came out, uh, she was standing there crying. And I said to her, What's wrong? She said, I cannot believe all these people passing by this place and not going in. You know, uh, So I do miss that passion. But I do understand that, um, as we told Gombrowicz, told Milos, um, high mountain air also creates amazing, you know, you don't need to be killed in order to love literature. Um, you have Proust and, and, and you have Flaubert and, and, and you know, um, you have many, many writers and readers because I believe that imagination is about our common humanity. You know, this is how we connect and to only celebrate difference without understanding that if you, like for example, talking about uh, Islamic Republic or Saudi Arabia, when they talk about women and they say, everything you tell them, they say it's their culture, you know, it's their culture. I always ask them, how come it is only America and Europe's culture where women don't like to be flogged? You know, I mean, why do you think that women, uh, you know, go to their death and are being stoned and they say, oh, we love it. It's our culture after all, you know. Um, the whole point is that every woman wants to have freedom of choice. And we have it in Iranian literature, in Iranian history. Nobody reads it. Nobody reads it. They all go and watch CNN and listen and read these experts who don't even speak Persian, you know. So the whole point, I don't even remember what I was saying. It, you know, it, it happens. <laughs> well, how did we come to this? I have no idea. Do you guys remember? I have no idea, but you know, um, digression is the sunshine oh, no, of Lolita. It was about uh, the Western literature, I was Pardon? You know, you know there's, a, there's a wonderful line in, in Nabokov that I've always loved about Gogol, where he talks about, about trying to describe Gogol's digression and digressive style. And he says, if two parallel lines do not meet, it is not because meet they cannot, but because they have other things to do. 
And, and this, is is what, this is and, what happened to and, us and just now. Just using Nabokov and Google, I remembered. Oh, but good, I, I, good. I wanted to say... That makes one of us. That Go. when you... Know, Please. I wanted to say that when you know that, that in this republic of ideas and imagination, um, that is the common ground where we find that a woman... Uh, who lived a thousand years ago in the imagination of a poet named Gorgani, um, wrote one of, uh, you know, is one of the most liberated women even today. That, that she chose, she not only refused a husband that she was forcibly married to, but she chose her own lover, you know. And, and, and that sort of com commonality, the shock of recognition of yourself in some other, in the way that my students all of a sudden understood how the violence in Hakfin or the violence imposed on Lolita basically is the same kind of violence that is happening to them when they are told who they should be by, by an outside force. Another... Uh, another um main protagonist in the book is, is James Baldwin, oh, yes. who, who speaks about it very much in those terms, that we, though we read alone, we're not alone, because mm. in these books we can recognize the pain we have endured ourselves. James Baldwin, that's why I finished my book with him. I think he's so relevant today. First of all, he was very active politically and, and, and as you all know, in civil rights. But he always considered himself a writer more than anything else. And he, when he was celebrated as an African-American writer, he, his second book was about a white young gay man in Paris, and, and his agent told him, burn the book. You already are known as an African-American writer, you know, and, and if you do that, you will be destroyed, you know. And his Kanaf refused to publish him, and he used a word that, because we're very polite here in No, in not here, so polite. He said, well, fuck you. And he went to England and published it, and he said, I'm neither an African-American writer, nor a gay writer, I am a writer. So he was a universalist, uh, you know. And uh, again, you know... Uh, uh, well, I, I'll, I'll, help you, I'll help you. And, uh, and, and, and aloneness, he yeah. talks... It is interesting with Baldwin that a lot of the writers that became the people he loved were, um, you know, people like Henry James, or he talks about Dostoevsky. He says, you think you're all alone, and then you read someone who read... Uh, who wrote a hundred years ago, named Dostoevsky, and you remember that all your struggles and burdens. Well, you <laughs> you you quote a passage, um, which I think is extraordinary. From "Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone," oh, yeah. you think your pain and your heartbreak yes. are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive or who had been alive. Do I mean, it could you read the, there's, and when he says that. Art would not be important if life was not important, and life is important. So he brings art and life together. James Baldwin, what can we say? Say something. <laughs> <laughs> you say something. <laughs>
Well, you know, um, it strikes me that literature doesn't really help heal, but it offers a form of consolation that makes us go on. You know, um, I'm so glad you brought this because I'm going to digress. Um, our problem today, especially in our schools, is that what we expect from knowledge is comfort. You know, we now have trigger warnings. Our students are constantly being hurt by reading Mark Twain or Great Gatsby or Merchant of Venice because they feel traumatized reading about violence or rape or things like that. They don't say how these writers bring violence because they describe the kind of violence that is against violence, but that's another story. That would take reading carefully. Th that would take reading carefully, and now, we, give, we make them comfortable. We, it's not like James Baldwin coming to the public library and reading every single book in his lo local library and learning and, and, and suffering and fighting with the hate that the suffering brings him. You know? But comfort today, entertainment, Beyonce, Bill O'Reilly, ideology and entertainment have become so dominant, you know, and, and literature does not comfort you. You don't write because you need an aspirin for the soul, and you don't read because of that. Literature teaches you to understand and confront and resist. And it teaches you to understand and confront and resist not just the tyranny of man, but the tyranny of time. Because it is the only thing we have, art and literature, against the absolutism of death. The conclusive evidence, as Nabokov says, that we have been there. So literature takes our revenge from both the tyrants and the tyrant time. You know, there's a line so often quoted, but I have to read it to you and have you react a little bit to it, which is a, a famous line of Kafka where he says, I think we ought to read only the kind of books that wound and stab us. If the book we're reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head, what are we reading it for so that it may make us happy? Good Lord, we would be happy precisely if we had no books. And the kinds of books that make us happy are the kind we could write ourselves if we had to but we need the books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea within us. That's beautiful. And, 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 and you know, that anguish and that disaster he talks about, what the, the feeling that gives to us is not comfort, but joy. There's a joyousness when you can feel the depth of both the cruelties of life and the fact that through articulating them, you're resisting them. Because the only way you can res resist is to be able to tell life not from the tyrant's perspective. You know, and Kafka never does that, but he brings that tyrant there too. To come to come back to to um, Mark Twain one more time, a line you you quote in the book that I really that really struck me as very strong in this context is about patriotism. Oh, you say yes. patriotism is supporting your country all the time and your government when it deserves it. 
Isn't it gorgeous? And Baldwin has something similar to that when he says, I love America more than any other country in the world. And that is why I give myself permission to criticize it. And um, uh, this is another re reason I wrote the book. Uh, after 11 years of, you know, I, I, when I returned uh, living here, I decided that I would become an American. And the reason for it was that um, I was... You know, I always feel that when you make somewhere home, when you love it so much, it doesn't mean that you constantly talk about it, you know, in praising it. But you start complaining about it. You know, if you love New York and you're not just a tourist to New York, you see all the loop bad things about New York that the others don't see, you know, including the closure of the bookstores here, you know. But... So when I started nagging about America all the time and wondering why things are like this, I decided that I want to become an American or maybe I'm already an American and I don't know it. And, my, and I, then I asked myself, if I don't define what kind of American I want to be, someone else is going to define it for me. So what kind of American do I want to be? And um, as I was writing this book, I thought... Bloody hell, I want to be that kind of American, you know, the Mark Twain kind of American, you know. Um, so now here we are with the government and... Um, I'll, 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 I'll read you um, a line of Giuliani on Obama and, <laughs> and see how you, how you feel about I, this. I, I thought you would read me Giuliani on Putin. Um, I know this is a horrible thing to say, but I do not believe the president loves America. He doesn't love you and he doesn't love me. He wasn't brought up the way you were brought up and I was brought up through love of this country. I, I, I really, you know, you really become flabbergasted. You know, Mark Twain makes you want to talk and Giuliani wants you to shut up because, because first of all, may I bring an example from Mark Twain? He gives a speech to the Pilgrim Society, to the Mayflower Society on celebration of the pilgrims. And tongue-in-cheek, he tells them that you deprived me of my ancestors. And he begins with the, with the first Native American that they killed. And he goes through Quakers and the witches, and he comes to the slaves from Africa. And he says, every one of these people was my ancestor and you took them away from me. Because I am a many-shaded, exquisite mongrel. And I always thought, that yay, cool. that is America. That is the place where you come from where Giuliani was not born. And you look at this country and you believe that what you imagine can come true and you become part of America. And this guy, by saying that Obama doesn't like it and bringing this reason, shows that how could he love this country when he knows nothing about this country, when he has felt nothing about this country. You know, uh, it, it is just heartbreaking. Yet, yet you, you, you do feel rather critical of our current president in terms of what he's doing for let's say, the, the appreciation of literature and books. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I do. And you know, I never voted in my life any time before, except for in 2012 when I, uh, when I got my um, citizenship in 2000, I voted for Obama. Only, and 
I'm accountable to him. He's accountable to me, definitely. He's, you know, and how, I, how, how has he let you down? Well, I cannot believe um, the administration's policy on, on, on education. And I cannot believe that all of these State of Union addresses, all of these speeches about technology, not once do we talk about humanities. I mean, this president is the president I expected to be talking about humanities because of the fact that actually where he comes from, which Giuliani doesn't like, comes from the, the, idea, the best ideas of enlightenment, you know? And... Uh, is, is this because there's a, a, a view that what should be studied should be utilitarian, should, yes. be, should be something that you can use? You can use, and, and utilitarianism is the death of America. I mean, you know, you have Jefferson talking about the fact that um, um, a lot of people pay more attention to building bridges than, than humanities. But we need both. Frederick Douglass talks about we need both the hand and the head. We need both. That is American pragmatism that sees knowledge and reality entwined. But here we have an administration where eloquence is supposed to be, where he goes to politics and prose and buys books for his daughters. And yet, you know, when it comes to our children's future, he keeps talking about technology as a vocation. But why is it so hard to make a case for literature? It's I mean, not hard. Literature, Rumi says the sun is the reason for the sun. Literature is the reason for literature. Anybody who looks at it in a utilitarian way, they go. Not this book, but the books inside this book will stay. Have you tried to, I mean, you live in D.C., have you tried to convince members of Congress? <laughs> I have been to Congress and uh, in order to um, voice my support for National Endowment for Humanities. And, uh, you know, I would How did that go? Uh, and some Congress people are uh, sympathetic. <laughs> some of them who are sympathetic are gone now, like Jim Moran was, and Barbara Mikulski is still. But, um, you know, the point is, at one point, you know, when I first came to America, I thought, I'm in a free country, and yes, uh, now I can talk to my government. So both Clinton administration and to an extent Bush administration, I, I went and talked to people. And then with the war in Iraq, I realized they only listen to what they want to listen. Someone like me who believes in human rights and in what I believe imagination um, should believe in the first word of the Constitution, we the people. So I want to go to the public. I believe this is a country that is built on grassroots and we really need at this point to pay attention to what is happening to us because at some point there is no return. The way the corporations now are people is no return. Another, um, another great um, hero of the book uh, is Carson McCullers. <laughs> and um, there's one line I'd, I'd love to quote back to you. I have sometimes thought of Carson McCullers as my ideal student. <laughs> you, you said that. I didn't say yes, that. Yes, you did. No. Yes. How could I? I don't know. My ideal student? No, yeah. I never said that. Where? 
I would have to find it. Um, no. What is an ideal teacher for you? An, uh, an, ideal, an ideal teacher? teacher for I you? think an ideal teacher is the person who, you know, as a teacher, you both have to be there with your, with the things that you're really passionate about, but you have to also, it's like writing. You also have to fade away in order to let others breathe. You know, and I think that the most important task of a teacher is to teach students how to breathe, to breathe freely, and to connect to the books themselves. I never, ever start with theory. I never start with my own theories about a book. Um, I want my students to first connect to the text on their own, to create their own relationships, and then, you know, you demand that they go into everything else about, about a book, you know. Do you, do you think, um, in, in looking back at Nabokov's lectures on literature, um, do, you, do you feel he was a successful teacher? Because he's been criticized so often. He's been... Nabokov is a very polarizing character, isn't he? I mean, he's either being criticized or being loved. You know, I can imagine that uh, you know, he would be a very intimidating presence with all that, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the way he faked contempt, uh, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, Updike loved him. Uh, in some of my talks, two or three times it has happened that people have come to me and said, you know, I was in that Novikov class, you know, and, and they seemed to love him, but I can see he would be polarizing. I don't know if I would dare go up there and ask him a question, you know. I remember so clearly when I when I gave my mother the lectures on literature, she was um, so taken by it, and she said yeah. it, it must be extraordinary to be yeah. a student, because she imagined that each professor I had was like Nabokov. That hardly. Yeah. No, you're 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 right because first of all, because you know Nabokov is amazing because he's teaching both with the eyes of a scientist and a poet and a writer, you know. And, uh, and you one saw of the, upstairs those yeah, incredible corrections. Incredible, and, 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 and what he calls the divine details. Today, in that um, room, the Berg collection, uh, we looked at his attention to every world. I mean, he's read these books word by word, you know. And that is what you want the students to learn to see life through the alternative eyes of, of a new reader at, and at the same time to not miss the readers, uh, the, also, the, the details. Also Nabokov taught us not to read for the purpose of recognizing ourselves. No, yes. That, I always start with my criticism classes with Alice in Wonderland because I think the whole idea of reading is, you know, you're listening to a boring book, you know, and you're daydreaming. And then you need to have the alternative eye to see a white rabbit. And a great reader has the courage to run after that white rabbit without asking a question. And you have to have the courage to jump down that hole without imposing your own presuppositions. Because every new book is like jumping down a hole you know nothing about. A lot of academia today, instead of letting you jump down that hole, they tell you, no, no, no. Well, first let us see what kind of a hole is it. Do we like this hole? 
is it Republican or Democrat? You know, is before it deep you or not deep? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and does it confirm to exact formula we have for the whole? So you stand in, you know, you, you just turn away from the whole. Well, it makes me think of what you said earlier, which is in, in, in different terms that we coddle our, our, our children too much. Yes. We cuddle our children and, and we make we protect them, them We protect them from, from actually hurting themselves. And now we're protecting them from reading or, or from listening to music. Uh, my daughter was always amazed at how many parents, when she was, and she was in a public high school, by the way, how many uh, parents would complain that um, Scarlet Letter was too long for their kids, you know, that they can't read this much. I had the same problem in my graduate class sometimes, you know. Well, just, just read the bloody thing, you know. I mean... And stop complaining. Stop complaining. And stop think, putting yourself in the middle of everything, you know. It hurts me, it's too long, it's difficult. Why do we read this? We read it in high school, you know. Just give, give up that self for a moment, you know. It's like falling in love, you know. You can't constantly say, oh my God, I wanted someone with brown hair and this guy has blue eye, blue, ha blue hair, no. Well, some well, people some do. People do. <laughs> yeah, I fell in love with a guy with blue hair. I always thought that, you know. You, you say we, we should be teaching our students that they need to have their peace disturbed. Yes. That is what James Baldwin says. He says writing, uh, literature is there to disturb the peace. And you constantly hear it from great writers that we are here to disturb your peace. We are here to... To be an irritant. Yes. To, to, you to let a, you look at the world differently. You know, Tolstoy talks about um, like dusting, like there's dust on routine, and, and, and you dust it. He says that you need to uh, see through clear washed eyes, uh, and, and, and that is what writing does. It clears, it washes the eye, so that no rabbit is ever just an ordinary rabbit, you know. It brings out the extraordinariness of the ordinary, you know. And uh, to, to, to deprive our children of that, you know, a child that comes into life and looks at an ordinary pot or pan and thinks it's a magic boat, we deprive them of that, of looking at life through that magical eye. I mean, it's an obvious question, but how does one change that tendency try in some way to, to redress the balance and bring children back. Sometimes I think our children should um, rebel against us. Um, and, and, and the young people already are in a sense because now technology is the establishment before it was the rebel. And so they're going back to books, you know. Uh, I feel that the first thing with us as adults is to understand to understand that this is happening. And the second thing as adults is to start with our communities. And the third thing as adults is, I owe it to my f young friend Michael that now I have Twitter and Facebook and things like that. But to use Twitter and Facebook and web in order to unite, 
to not let this happen. Look what people are doing in Indiana. I mean, every time people come out in droves, um, then the elite, you know, withdraw. Uh, and, and, and we need to do that. We need to be active. I, I said when I, I, before bringing you on stage, that we, we got caught upstairs yeah. looking at manuscripts and books. Mm. What is it? I mean, you know, you, you wanted me to show some images tonight, which, we, which I'd like you to invoke. Um, we, books we, offer some form of, of resilience, some form of resistance, mm. but they are also so infinitely pleasurable to touch. Yeah. Yes, um, you know, uh, we talk about books and even... Uh, Former president of Penn International, I think, said that reading is reading. You know, you can read books uh, on anything. But as you mentioned, books have now become an indispensable part of our reality as, as, as objects. I always remember Virgil saying that objects have tears in them. You know, um, the book, and I wish that I had Peter Sisse's um, hardcover of Attar's Conference of the Birds. You know, you opened those pages. First of all, Attar was this Persian poet living centuries ago, a Czech man living in America. You know, he creates his poetry through images. And the images are like whirling dar dervishes you know, the, the birds, and then the touch. No one book looks like another or feels like another. And then you take it to bed with you. I once said that, uh, well, never mind. No, uh, no, 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 I do mind. I'm sorry, I'd, I'd like to know. No. I, please, I was, please, and, tell me. I was in I'm, Connecticut. I'm the only one hearing this, tell me. No, I was in Connecticut Forum with Jonathan Franzen and... Um, uh, John Irving, and uh, well, the two are writers. I'm a reader, basically, you know. So they each said their bit, and I said to them that, well, I know you guys. I mean, I don't know you personally, but I know your books because with each writer, I have rode with them, I have sat in a chair with them, I have t gone to bed with them, you know. And the next day I saw on the internet, it said, Azar Nafisi says it should take in Jonathan Franzen to bed with her, or something like that. Like that. But uh, the truth is that you've taken what so many writers. Yeah. Some of them, you know, yeah. you don't like as much as the others, but I, I read every night before I sleep, you know. And, 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 and they become part of your memory. Once I was going to write a book about all the different places where I have read specific books that I remember. Do you, do you, do you, do you, do you know that small text of, of uh, Proust on, called On Reading, mm -hmm. which is extraordinary, where he speaks about... Um, he said, I think the first sentence is like something like, there are no days of our childhood that we lived so fully than those we thought we hadn't lived, those we spent with a favorite book. Oh. But then he goes on to say that really what we remember about the book is not really the book, but where we read it yes. and what disturbed us and the fact that our mother asked us to come to lunch when we really didn't want to go to lunch. Uh, we wanted to stay in the presence of that 
th that that story. Is that, is that what you're yes, you're, you're and and when about? we went to the Berg collection, yeah. I mean, the first thing that caught my eye was that very mischievous photo of Nabokov. But then you know they had um, Nabokov's books and his writings on uh, on the margins and his drawings, you know. And then they also had uh, these cards where Nabokov wrote on. And I, I was wondering what happens to the writers now if they only write on, you know. So the traces, and, and then they had this amazing picture of T.S. Eliot, uh, who was posing like a film noir because he loved Chandler. So Which is something that was new to you today. Yes, I never knew that he loved, uh, you know, I mean, Raymond, I love Raymond Chandler. I inserted, um, without my editor looking, uh, one page on him in this book. But, but the point about it is that those writings, the, the curve of the words, the way he writes, um, they all bring the, the person back. And we need memories. What will happen when all our memories become virtual? What will happen when you, you walk down the streets of New York? There are no more shops, you know. What, what, what One big, what strikes, huge warehouse. What, what strikes me, though, as uh, is not only that. I mean, I'm not. The shops worry Every me less than mm. than walking down the street and seeing everybody davening yeah. on their machine. Yeah. And I, I think to myself, what would have happened if I were 12 or 13 or 14, indeed, like my, my sons are, looking yes. down at this machine and nearly bumping into everybody. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm bumped into every day so many times. By right. all, you know, and so you... Basically, you don't notice that there are no shops. You're right. Or that some of the shops that you loved, I'm, I assume that by shops you mean not necessarily very large shops, no. but the small no. shops that made, a, made up a neighborhood. Yeah, but and, I want, and the I want community to, yeah. that they create, you know. I want us to be careful not to wax too, li too nostalgic, but still. Um, you, you mentioned that you, you were able to insert some writers into, into this new book. Um, but there are many, many, many you yes. left out. Oh, yeah. About 20 of them, and you chose, you chose four. So which ones did you leave out, and, and why? Oh, why, God, why? there were so many. And, and, I, and I wanted also to pay attention to books that are not being read much. Um, the ones that I remember was Melvis Confidence Man, Nathaniel West's um, The Day of the Locust, um, Dawn Powell. I, I was wondering which one of her, uh, should I put a New York novel or, or a different kind of novel? Uh, Flannery O'Connor, um, Zora Neale Hurston, what happened? Ralph where, Ellison. Where, where, where? Well, you know, my editor was right, and I realized that there would be less substance. The more I put in, the less substance I will get and that um, I should choose the, the writers, as in case of reading Lolita, where um, that are the colors of the realities I want to talk about. Uh, and with Baldwin, actually, at first he was going to be a chapter. I wrote so long that they brought out the advanced copy without the epilogue, because Joy believed that I'll never finish that one. And uh, I definitely wanted to end with Baldwin. You know, so um, the new edition will have a different subtitle. Yes, it will now. Um, I can't tell you because they might kill me. I okay, mean, so don't. <laughs> um, I mean if there's anyone from Penguin here, 
I know you'll kill me with kindness, but nonetheless, you'll kill me. Because, you know, there's, there's a wonderful line at the beginning of Nabokov's lectures on, on literature where he says, Comme l'on serait savant si l'on connaissait bien seulement cinq à six livres. What a scholar one might be if one knew well only five or six books. Yeah. Can you imagine? I no. can, a little bit. Can you? No, I'm very promiscuous with books, so I always... You take a lot of them to bed. <laughs> Somehow, always... Actually, that talks about the sexuality of books. Mm. That every time I think of describing a book, um, the, the images that come to my mind are all very sensual. You know, it is. I don't know, so tell me a little but, bit. But, you know, you said, actually, it's not fair to talk as if it was my saying. You and I had talked before, and you were talking about how both intimate the relationship with a book is, you know. And, you know, sometimes in Iran, you won't believe it, but I would take a book with me just to give me confidence to walk down those streets, and I would go like this. Um, I had gotten so used to do that with the great Gatsby and with Hafez, uh, our Persian poet. Um, so it is the sensuality uh, of the books. So what was I... <laughs> no, you were talking about that. Yeah, and, and, and um, mm. the fact that, it, as you said, it is both very intimate, you know, um, and um, at the same time, it is very communal because readers are community. And that is what I love about it, that people you never know, they become very intimate to you. Well, you, you talk about them as intimate strangers. Yes, intimate strangers. Which I, I love as a formula because in, in, in many ways I think of my own, whatever it is that I do, which is... Amazingly imaginative. Well, it's chatting with people and trying to unpack their pockets and trying to do all of that. But it is a form of intimacy that is staged, that is a moment in time. Yes. Um, and it, and it, it has the goal, which is not dissimilar, which is, you know, we read alone and, and yet the desire here, at least tonight, is for people to hear this and then go back into solitude. And that solitude then creates a community because you want to, you, you want to talk about it. Yes, I mean, you, you need to talk you about need it. To talk you about know, I've, I've often quoted this line, which I don't know if you know it, by Winnicott, that in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an essay of Winnicott, Winnicott says that uh, it's uh, an essay called The Role of M the Contribution of Mothers to Society. Mm -hmm. And he says that the goal is for the child to be alone in the presence of the mother. Wow. Which for me has always been one of the best formulations of what reading is. Yes. We're alone, and yet we have the sustenance. Yes, yes. And, and because we cannot communicate with everyone who seems, shares the same passion, we both write and read in order to connect, but we both write and read in order to go with what you call solitude. And solitude is very different from being alone. You know, Primo Levi, when he wrote his books after coming out of the concentration camp, said, um, I write in order to rejoin the community of mankind. You know, and I always think that... Um, to be a witness. Yeah, to be a way. witness. And in concentration camps, in gulags, I know of 
my student in Iran, why is it that when you're at death's door, you're thinking like Primo Levi that about you Dante. want yeah, you? about Dante and wanting, and he said that translating Dante into French was for my cellmate was more important to me than my daily ration of bread. Why? To these utilitarian gentlemen and women today who are trying to take this away from us, we ask them, why is it that at death's door people take away with them an image of Van Gogh, the music of Mozart, and Madame Bovary, Nabokov's father in jail, Madame Bovary. You know, my father in jail learned a new language and you know, started painting and wrote poems. Uh, why is that? That is the resilience that you talk about, that when we're at death's door, when we, like now, you watch on television people being beheaded, and you hate yourself because whatever other people do, you are also capable of. You're capable of the best and the worst. You know, and when you think that you have sunk and humanity have sunk to this level, then at death door, you want to remember the best that humanity has to offer. And the best that humanity has to offer is definitely not iPhone, you know. It is that poem by Dante that has survived centuries, you know. So um, I don't think it will go away. Maybe it will. But then we, will we be humans? Will we be humans again if we lose our love for imagination and for ideas? This is something to contemplate, you know. Even Steve Jobs agrees with us, you know. would be a good place to end, but we won't quite. Um, you have complex feelings towards one of the great literary scholars, Edward Said. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, okay. <laughs> what were you going to say? I'm sorry. Why? What, um, what was it about Said that um, was inspiring, but also quite um, made you pause. Well, uh, first of all, I, I like to say that I very much dis differentiate between Said and those who claim his legacy, or not all of them, but many of them, because they've taken Said like a god, like an icon, and they impose him upon every text that they read. Uh, or every reality that they confront, and that was not Said, maybe. I think Said, at his best, um, provoked us, and because he was so intelligent and prolific, and in many ways passionate, um, that provocation, even when you disagreed with him, and I disagreed with him a lot, I disagree with him a lot, I respected him, and I wanted to respond to him, you know, on his own level. Um, now he's been reduced, and I think that he himself reduced himself at some point when he became such an essentialist, making all these 
generalized claims, like saying things like uh, from Aeschylus to the present, <laughs> every Western uh, person has been an imperialist or a reactionary. Uh, you know, Aeschylus, and he meant, I think, Aeschylus's Persians. To have a Greek write about his worst enemies, which were the Persians, would understanding and insight, you know, I think it's the greatest achievement. I, unlike him, think that the realm of ideas and imagination is not um, uh, property of any nation. You know, that mankind needs a place where you transcend your time and your own prejudices. Said couldn't see that, I think. Um, the fact that um, Fitzgerald in real life was destroyed by his uh, mes being mesmerized by wealth. But he writes The Great Gatsby, which to this day is the greatest condemnation of wealth. You know, when he talks about Daisy and, you know, uh, Tom and says, they were careless people. You know, phew, that is amazing, you know. And, and when we talk about exchanges, of course there were prejudiced orientalists who said a lot of bullshit, you know. And, and when you feel equal to people, you respond to them. But there were a lot of them, like Edward Brown, who fell in love with Persia, with Persian music, with Dick Davis today. You go over Dick Davis, a British poet who fell in love with a Persian woman and with Persian literature. Without Dick Davis, Persians would be deprived of a lot of it. I think if you believe in the other, then you believe that you need the alternative eyes of the others to constantly read you, interpret you, critically look at you, love you. And you need to be writing about the others. I experienced that in Iran. When I was in Iran, our connection to the world was cut. We didn't like American politics. We criticized American politics. But the way we connected to the world was through the best ambassadors that America had to give. So Persian kids are the ones who are reading Hannah Arendt and uh, Saul Bellow and, and, you know. It's marvelous how you say these names. I mean, Saul Bellow. Uh, I mean, there's something uh, that is providing you with a tingle in your spine just saying that. Yes. Yes, Saul Bellow was the one who said, those who survived the ordeal of Holocaust, how will they survive the ordeal of freedom? Because in this country we should remember that freedom is far, you know, sometimes far more of an ordeal. In a, in a, in a, in a country like Stalin, actually, he said, said Stalin gives you naked cruelty. You know what Stalin is doing. You know, you know when they kill people and torture people. But freedom has its ordeals. Freedom means that everything that happens in this country, everyone in this room and in this country is responsible for because it is individual responsibility. You know, and because you have responsibility, you need to know. You need to have knowledge. You need not to remain silent. You know, uh, and, and, and these are the things uh, that we need to... You know, Saul Bellow said something that I've always loved. He said, um, one doesn't love because, but in spite. In spite, yes. One loves in spite. 
Um, All things considered. Yeah. Beautiful. Yes, that, that is an amazing uh, poem. All things considered. Uh, and, and, and these are... And that is why, unlike what people say, art and life are very close. You know, art takes you to another world, but um, the clay from which you create that other world comes from reality. You see Nabokov, who constantly says reality should be written in parentheses. He's constantly, uh, you know, aware of the smallest detail in reality. That is what we were talking about at the Berg collection, of how meticulous he was how when he was meticulous and, and how cantankerous, yes. no? I mean, that, that introduction to the, the Kafka, yes. uh, the metamorphosis, he, he writes after the introduction of the translator, he says, this is all crap, yes. right? I mean, this is just terrible. So it isn't, it isn't as though, I mean, he's very... He's very, very impatient. Very with, impatient with and opinionated in, in, in very strong ways. Are there certain books that you, that you have gone back to over time that you simply can't understand? That uh, I can't understand the yeah, books? Or yeah, the they, they resist you. They, they, they push you away. They, you try, maybe you even love them, but they, they still can't, you can't get to their, to their that heart. That is a, very difficult question. Uh, I'm just uh, thinking, thinking over uh, over again, and and I I can think of some who I maybe books liked. you you would like to like and can't quite, and Sometimes maybe because something. Alan Robb Grier. I don't know why he came to my mind. Uh, That's did. very strange. Um, there are some writers that, you know, novel is very messy. And, and uh, Dickens has, you know, many diversions sometimes and everything, but life is messy, <laughs> you know. And, and I love the novels that, um, as Twain said, he said, Mark Huckfin is about a book of mine which is about the conflict between a sound heart and a deformed conscience. Um, I, I love novels that have a heart, not, not, not novels that are very clever, very well written, but the heart is not there. Uh, and I cannot talk of any writers who are alive because I don't think it's fair. Uh, I have a context for that. I can't just drop their name without... Uh, uh, and Alan Rob Grier came to my mind because uh, when I was very young, I, I, I was fascinated. And he's fantastic, but I think he takes it to a place where, the, you know, um, the heart also fades. I don't are there, are know books that, But I haven't uh, read him in a yeah. long time. Are there books that, that uh, you, you feel have aged well with you? <laughs> well... Yes, the ones that I write about have aged well. Um, actually, for this book, I read a lot of books that I had read in my youth. So, uh, Melville aged well. Uh, actually, aged better uh, because I found corners in him that I had not. Because I always, because I always worry, you know, if I went back yes. and read Hermann Hesse. If I read yes. Siddhartha oh, now... Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay, Hermann good. Hesse. Yes, Siddhartha or uh, yeah. Steppenwolf. I think they've aged for me. 
Uh, well or badly? No, not well. Yeah, I would, I would, well. I, and I would, and I would, as I would, I'm, I would be frightened to read them. You're right. Because I, but I would be frightened to read them because they would bring back probably the worst part of my yes. childhood. And, 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 and the fact that I like them And now is you're a, bringing really out uh, the yeah. worst part of mine. <laughs> you're reminding me of that, yes. Um, I, I'm afraid of reading To Kill a Mockingbird. I, I read it a long time, and, and, and I, I still respect that book a great deal, because I believe that if in your adolescence and childhood a book stayed with you, there was something in it that stayed with you. But I was very afraid to read it again. Uh, it has aged, uh, but, but it has aged well as well, I think. I, I won't go into that one. But, but to um, go back to Hesse, why wouldn't it... Hesse was just... What, uh, it wasn't a novel. It was just a mishmash of uh, Eastern sort of philosophy, you know, um, rather preachy, therefore rather boring, uh, you know. And um, uh, I guess at a certain age, uh, you, uh, you know, uh, you are fascinated by it. I was also fascinated by Samuel Beckett for the wrong reason when I was young. But when I reread him, there's what were the, those bad reasons? Well, I don't know. I mean, you're at that age where uh, you're trying to sort of um, be contemptuous of the world, uh, you know, and, and you oh, yes. hold your Beckett in your hand. And, I and, had that uh, moment so strongly. And you strongly, and your boyfriend yeah. uh, know no, more I, about I, I, life. I had, I had that moment so strongly. I remember so clearly my mother being so worried that, you know, all of my, my friends only wore black. <laughs> And, yeah, you know, she asked me one day if I didn't have any friends who played tennis. I mean, she was really quite, quite worried. But, but what did you then discover in Beckett that you hadn't been able well, to read when I you were younger? I discovered that, it, that Beckett goes beyond um, just a philosophy or a way of... Um, um, a philosophy of life, the absurdity, the, um, the lack of communication. Um, and, and, and actually, one of the Beckett books that I liked, went back to, was Malone Dies. You know, and um, it, the point about it was that it did really keep me going because of my curiosity. I wanted to go more and more into that character. And I wanted to, um, you know, I, uh, there was something about him that was mesmerizing that you almost felt, okay, I can touch it, I can see it, I can't, you know. In, in, in closing, what qualifies for you as a, a bad reader and a good reader? Well, first of all, a good reader is Alice. Jumps into the book without any presuppositions or imposition. The second time, the second thing is that uh, you have to talk to the book. You have to be an active reader. You know that story, the never-ending story, the German film, where it says that the world of Fantasia is dying because a monster called nothingness is eating it and you need a reader to give it a new name. So every reader has, is as responsible as a writer for the upkeep of the book. So what does a bad reader do? And, and, and every reader, as Nabokov says, is a re-reader, I think, every great reader. A bad reader, oh God, you know, it's easy. They just impose themselves on the book. They, they, they don't want to endanger anything. They say, 
Just say what I want you to say. And by the way, our schools are doing a great job of creating bad readers. Uh, you know, uh, they, they, if you are, that is what I learned when I came to America, that if you are African-American, even of a stature of Toni Morrison or James Baldwin, um, then African-Americans should read you or talk about you. If you are Asian-American, the same. If you are um, a dead white male, everybody talks about you. And, 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 and I realized that that is not the way to read. That, in fact, whites and Asians should be reading Baldwin and African-Americans should be reading Salinger, you know. Uh, and that is one thing that I really dislike. You know, I, when I came to America, uh, a lot of my colleagues told me, you really came at a good time for you because you're a woman and you come from an Islamic country, so you can go into women's studies and Islamic studies. They want you. And I said, you go into women's studies <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, Islamic studies. I want to talk about dead white males because of the fact that equality comes from each of us being able to talk about the other. Uh, and you give so much dominance to dead white males by saying that they are dead. Well, they're not dead, you know, but they belong to all of us, whether we're women or, you know, women of color. We, Shakespeare belongs as much to me as it does to Giuliani, although Giuliani wouldn't want it most probably, you know. <laughs> so, um, honestly, Paul, we're lucky. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.